It's Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and serve as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. And today we are joined by someone I have respected in the industry for a long time, someone who was doing renewables well before renewables were cool. Paul Kern, who's the CEO of BQ Energy. BQ is a brownfield and landfill developer. They've done amazing and hundreds of megawatts in, in wind and solar. In full disclosure, Clean Capital, we acquired them last year and really are working together to scale up the work they're doing. And you're going to hear from Paul how that space is its unique. So you really have to know what you're doing, but the potential to solve the climate crisis and utilize this otherwise sometimes underutilized, if not impossibly utilized land that are brownfields and landfills could be a critical piece of that solution. So as always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Paul, thanks for finally joining me at Experts Only. It's a great pleasure to be here. As you know, I've been a big fan of the podcast for a long time, and it's a it's really kind of fun to finally get on as a guest. Well, excited to have you. And, you know, I think when I always sort of look back at your career and your trajectory in this space, you were doing renewables well before renewables were cool. Um, And, you know, really helped lay the groundwork for some of the growth we've seen over the last uh, decade and a half in this space. For folks that don't know, you know, you grew up um, and got a a, a degree in engineering from Columbia and Marist College. Why were you interested in being an engineer? Oh, uh, you know, I try to keep my politics out of the office, but um, but I was uh, going to college during the time of uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, also during the time of uh, Three Mile Island and other energy things were really kind of top of mind. You know, the first time we all started thinking about alternate energy and, you know, the natural gas bubble and so forth. And it and it really grabbed me. Um, so I started studying energy uh, back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. And um, and it really was a um, kind of a mission filled thing. It made an awful lot of sense to me. Energy efficiency was, you know, just a, a logical thing to look at and so forth. So, you know, I, I got a passion about it and I loved it. And you, you know, before getting into the renewable space, you were in the sort of traditional um, energy space, right? Working for Texaco and Chevron. And if I remember right, you actually at one point were stationed overseas, right? Working I was, on these issues. Yes and- I, I started in alternate energy and then, um, you know, the, the country kind of shifted a little bit. And um, so I, I started out working in the alternate energy division of Texaco, um, which sort of was cogeneration, energy efficiency, clean coal kind of stuff, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And then almost accidentally, we wound up building a wind farm inside of one of our oil refineries in Rotterdam. Um, I was in charge of the European division at that time of alternate energy. I was, you know, presented this project. Nobody told me I was supposed to say no to it. Um, yeah. So we built it and it worked out to be a, a really successful uh, project. I wanted to do more of it. Um, and it was time my kids were at the right age where I wanted to come back to the States. Um, and um, really, it was making the big leap into starting up my own company um, really with that business plan of building wind farms. Uh, I knew that there were a lot of brownfields, uh, closed oil refineries, that kind of thing. Uh, my first trip to Buffalo actually yeah. where I first met you was uh, there are two closed oil refineries right near Buffalo. And I went up there saying, okay, maybe one of them is windy. 
Uh, and um, so we went around doing that kind of thing, got back into uh, this format of BQ Energy, uh, really when we came back to the States and it was, uh, you know, difficult at first, but worked out really well. Yeah. So for folks that don't know, BQ Energy, you founded it in 2002 and really focuses on sort of brownfield development, which I really want to dive into with you in a second. But, you know, what sort of coming back from Europe, you know, what gave you the confidence that, you know, you could start your own company and sort of get this going? Oh, confidence is a difficult word when you start your own company, as you know, it's a um, it's a, a yeah, hope it's and, prayer, and and we were comfortable that we had a good business plan. Um, you know, I started up saying that um, we had built this one wind farm inside of an operating oil refinery in Rotterdam. I knew that there were 180 closed oil refineries in the United States. Um, so a, a big market in my mind that you could go look for. Most of them are coastal to get the oil in and out and get the products in and out. And I thought, well, coastal probably means windy. So it seemed to make sense. Um, working on brownfields and landfills makes sense um, in a lot of ways. A lot of people think that wind farms are ugly. And that was a real blocker for the technology as it came forward. Um, closed oil refineries just happen to be uglier. Um, so it makes a lot of sense from a community <laughs> acceptance point of view that if you're trying to build a, these wind turbines on in a place that's already ugly, um, that that wouldn't be an issue. The other thing is that uh, oil refineries historically have used a lot of electric power uh, and um, the power lines never come down. So if you have an old right. brownfield in your town, the utilities don't come in and take out the uh, the power lines. They're hoping somebody's going to do something to to use the power lines eventually, um, and those power lines can take the power out. So, really, from a community point of view, we looked at brownfields and landfills as something that you could put um, wind farms in with minimal impact and a lot more acceptance of the technology uh, than you would otherwise see on agricultural land or out in uh, you know pristine areas of mountain ridges and that kind of thing. And it did work out. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to dive deeper into that, the development side, but just for a second, I want to paint a picture for the audience on when we're talking about what a, what a brownfield is, right? If people know what a landfill is. I think that's pretty uh, self-explanatory. But when a place like Buffalo, New York, uh, where Paul and I have uh, met and where I am today, is a place that had a really strong industrial base historically. On our lake was uh, a massive steel uh, manufacturing facility, one of the, the biggest in the world at the time, uh, Bethlehem Steel. And it is a, uh, you know, a pristine part of the lakefront that has been now untouched, had been for decades, because as Bethlehem Steel went under uh, here in Western New York, and no one could do anything on those sites, because the environmental impact of what was buried, the challenges of it. And, you know, now, I'm going to paint a picture of where we are today, and I'm going to talk about how we got there. But, you know, just flying back into Buffalo last night from California, you fly over the coast uh, of Lake Erie, and there's these beautiful wind farms sistered up to some solar systems that are there. You have development happening on the ground, big manufacturing uh, coming back in and warehouses going into the, those sites. But as you said, they had the infrastructure in place to, lack, I don't want to say plug and play, but to plug those power systems in. Mm -hmm. um, talk about sort of developing that steel sun or steel wind project, you know, really in a place where folks were not familiar with what the opportunity held. No, they weren't. Um, and, you know, it's, a, it's a, a really a source of pride. But if you look at the city seal, the crest of the city of Lackawanna, New York, which is adjacent to Buffalo, um, it was uh, a local saint 
um, who was um, you know legendary in the area. Um, and behind him, there was a smokestack um, from the steel plant. That was what they yep. were proud of and so forth. Today, if you look, it's the, the smokestack been replaced and it's a wind turbine, um, which is really uh, cool. At the time we started, um, very few people knew what a wind turbine looked like. Uh, there were lots of stories about how much noise there might be and other impacts. But the city of Lackawanna was really looking to change themselves. And uh, the mayor at the time was a retired plumber. He was a, you know, a good Polish American who was, you know, looking to do good stuff for his city. Um, and um, we really worked well with him. He wanted to bring change. Um, his vision of that site was basically to clean it up so that, you know, new businesses would look at it as an ideal place and an, an attractive place to be coming. You know, it was pretty much known as the abandoned steel plant. When we got there, it had been closed for about 20 years. Um, and what he wanted was, you know, new business coming on would look at it as a kind of a green energy sort of incubator. Uh, and that is what's happened. The wind farms have been up for about 15 for years sure. now. Um, most people around Buffalo, you know, they know it was a steel plant, I suppose, but most of the younger people, the thing you can see from around Buffalo, from your office or elsewhere is, uh, you know, there's the wind turbines and people have gotten used to them and people take pride in them, which we uh, we think is really cool. Yeah, they don't even know today that there's solar there. Like, I think people know it as no. the wind area. And and if you drive down Route 5, which we do multiple times a week, past this area, uh, you, you really get an interesting uh, dichotomy between that side of the road where there's been uh, work done on the Brownfield site to bring wind and bring solar. And literally, if you look left, the old steel factory much of the skeleton is still there and actually just a few years ago to massive fire. And it's just, mm-hmm. it really, it looks like it's uh, 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 a, a really a sad sight, uh, but it shows what with the right vision, the right commitment, the right investment. Uh, and I think the patience to implement these things you can do with a, a site like that. And, and John, um, the fun part of it is that not fun, but you could replicate that situation hundreds of times around the United States. Um, you know, there are um, a closed steel plant. You know, the Rust Belt got its name because of there's old infrastructure in the Rust Belt. Um, yeah. You know, when we look at opportunities, you know, I tell people often that if you give me any city in the country, I can find a brownfield or a landfill within 100 miles of it pretty easily. Um, and so reusing that type of site, um, it's a success story now. It's been 15 years and people don't even think anything but that's a great idea for it. Uh, and replicating that is something that, um, you know, we're looking at every day elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about that scale before we get to that. I'm going to just paint one more picture for folks. You and I went to a ribbon cutting not too long ago at a site that you had been working on for, for years, which is an old, uh, nuclear, uh, was supposed to be a nuclear waste facility, mm-hmm. uh, but is now a brownfield and that community for decades did not know what to do with this facility and they couldn't farm it. Uh, it's in an agriculture community. Uh, they, there's so much they couldn't do. And can you talk a little bit about what you guys were able to build there? Sure. Typical there. Again, the, the community approached us, uh, West Valley, New York, which is about uh, an hour east of Buffalo. <clears throat> um, it was a nuclear fuels reprocessing center. It was designed to be one in the 70s. Um, once you design one of those facilities and sort of begin to start it up, um, you've kind of condemned the land for a long time. Uh, because nobody right. wants to live near a uh, nuclear fuels reprocessing center. Um, and so the, the town supervisor came to us and said, you know, we've got all this land. We've got all these power lines that run in and out. 
Uh, is there something you can do to kind of build up our tax base and also kind of change the reputation of the town a bit? Um, you know, we took a look at it. It's, um, it's, it's actually one of the least polluted sites we've ever worked on in the sense that it doesn't really have an environmental footprint. It has an environmental, you know, reputation, if you will, uh, right. because of what went on there and so forth. So it is a brownfield uh, in the sense that it is impacted by the previous industrial uh, activity that went on there. Um, but it worked out to be a great success story. Again, the town was looking for redevelopment of the property. NYSERDA, actually, who owns the property, um, kind of went along for the ride at first. The town really drove it. Uh, and NYSERDA loves the idea now. It's been uh, really a showpiece for them as to how to redevelop government-owned property as well. Um, that site is uh, owned by the by NYSERDA. We needed to get the sign off from the Nuclear Fuels Regulatory Commission um, and a bunch of really? other yeah, agencies as well. Um, okay. All of them love the idea. It's um, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's not a site that a lot of people go past, um, but it really is um, showing the capability of repurposing brownfields. Yeah. So the the complexity of doing these deals when you think about doing a clean energy project in in general there's some complexity to building up even from a greenfield site but what you guys have done so well at BQ is understand the nine dimensional chess you've got to be able to play to get whether it be the EPA for folks who know NYSERDA New York it's a New York state basically the energy regulatory group um, you know, it's not NIPA, which is utility, but it does a lot of the policy setting and, and so forth for the state. Um, but being able to play that nine-dimensional chess to move forward on these types of projects, you know, what, um, as you're talking to your team, as they're looking at these, like, how do you sort of coach them on how to approach uh, a, a new opportunity? And, you know, how do you engage with sort of all the key stakeholders? Sure. You know, we speak a little bit of a different language in the sense that we worry about the site first. Um, we worry about the uh, property. It's very common that we get a call from a coal company uh, that has mine land that uh, they're not going to be mining anymore. Uh, we've gotten calls from people that own coal-fired power plants that uh, that they're shutting down, but they have a lot of land. And and really, what we try to do is to focus first on the site. Uh, is there enough land? Is this the type of thing that um, we can structure a transaction. Is the owner clearly on board with this type of thing? Um, so our main focus, unlike um, some other projects where they'd be looking for the transmission grid first, we generally have the transmission grid with us because it's been something where they've been using electric power beforehand. Uh, but we're worried about the environmental footprint. How much land can we reuse? Um, generally speaking, it, it sound, it'll sound strange, but we generally have an easier path of permitting our projects uh, than most uh, projects that are going to be put on agricultural land or open uh, farmland, mm. only because the agencies themselves are typically a big fan of this. Um, you know, the, the folks at the, uh, the New York State uh, DEC um, were enormously supportive when we tried to do the wind farm and the solar fields out at the project you alluded to before, um, simply because they're in charge of repurposing brownfields, but they're also in charge of getting more renewable energy into the mix. Um, so they realized that this was a perfect reuse. Most environmental permitting people are really fans of re beneficial reuse of brownfields. They don't want to just have them sit there. They want them to be, you know, cleaned up and certainly repurposed. Um, everybody that's in this field gets wary about public access. 
so, you know, digging into a brownfield, is that something you want, you know, to put a park on where children might play and so forth? Generally not, but right. solar and electrical infrastructure is really a purpose, a perfect reuse of this type of property. Yeah, you're not putting a playground on a landfill, right? So, no, um, no and you shouldn't. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we've painted a picture of Western New York, which I think is, you know, I think for very, very telling because I live here and this is how we got to know each other. But, you know, there is a massive nationwide opportunity here and BQ is leading the way in places like Ohio and Texas. You know, do you have a, is there a sense or has been any uh, research done on what type of impact we could have in the brownfield space by adding even just solar? in terms of scale? Because, I mean, you guys have done hundreds of megawatts now. We have. And we're have. really just getting started. We're really just getting started. We absolutely are. It's a, um, you know, there are, EPA has a database with um, several hundred thousand possible sites where you can do this. Um, and every place we go, we see new communities have never heard of it before. Um, yeah. And, and we rarely, well, let me put it the other way. We've built uh, several dozen projects now. I've never had somebody come back to me and say, it was different than what you said. Uh, there was an impact that we didn't realize was going to happen by doing this. Uh, every project we've done, including you know Lackawanna, West Valley, and so forth, um, people understand what's going to happen beforehand, and afterwards they realize, well, you know, duh, that was a good idea. So the replication possibility is is great. Um, you know, if you took every landfill in New York State and every single village community and so forth in New York State has one. Uh, they put their trash for decades in those landfills. Uh, if you took every one of them, you could get up to, you know, 15 gigawatts of power, uh, which is probably about as much as New just York. in New York, just in New York. Um, and, and that's just in New York, just in New York. And and that's about the, about how yeah. much power I didn't look this morning, but that's probably about how much power New York is using right now. Um, so if you, if you took yeah. that nationwide, you know, and, and looked around and so forth, where could we do this? Um, you know, the possibilities are, are enormous. Now, you can't build on every landfill. Not every landfill is appropriate for various reasons and so forth. Um, but the impact of doing this is, is great. You know, we were on, a, on the call yesterday with a new group in Ohio um, that's interested in influencing some policy issues there and so forth. Um, they don't want to put solar on agricultural land. Um, and, you know, they're getting quite a bit of pushback from farmers who don't want to give up, you know, their land for this type of purpose, even though it might be economically preferred. But I think the, um, you know, when they talk to us and they, we, we talked about how many brownfields there are in Ohio, uh, again, the numbers are staggering. And I think it's a popular concept. There are some states that incentivize this, but not that many. And we're not very big in lobbying. Um, you know, we're working actually now that we're in the clean capital family. Yeah. We're learning a little bit more about that. But I think it is something where policymakers and local officials are learning more about the possibilities um, and the positive impact overall of doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, as we talk about scale, I think we, we haven't hit on this, but for uh, folks not familiar, Clean Capital did acquire BQ last year. It's been a, a really beautiful partnership for us. We are excited about um, not only the track record that Paul and his team have shown over the years, um, but, you know, the potential of continuing to to scale this and as someone who believes in you know the aggressive aggressive approach we need to, to take to solve the climate crisis this is a perfect way to really not just uh put great projects in the ground but to utilize land that you know otherwise uh is unusable at the time so um paul talk for a second about um 
you know, before we get in, I'm going to talk about the partnership a little bit, but, you know, I want to go back to the politics side of this because what you're doing is such a bipartisanly supported effort, right? There, there are people that may want, may not like some of the renewable side of what we're doing, but you're working with coal executives. You're working into the state of Texas. You're working in, you know, some rural areas in, in Ohio that aren't known as democratic bastions, right? Yeah. And you are getting support by leaders on both sides uh, because of the impact. We have some great projects in uh, West Virginia um, and um, widely supported. Um, we've got some, a lot of projects in, you know, Republican areas. It was funny. I, I met with a coal executive uh, down in Appalachia in uh, southwestern Virginia a year or so ago. And he bluntly said, uh, I, I hate what you're doing, um, but I realize this <laughs> is the right thing to do um, in the sense that, you know, he, he would like to mine more coal um, on his properties, you know, for forever. Um, I'm not the one telling him he can't, um, but he realizes that reusing the areas that have been previously mined uh, for doing this kind of thing just makes an awful lot of sense. Um, and we see that a lot. As I say, you know, we don't talk about our partners, uh, you know, but but we're working with a lot of coal companies. And, um, you know, when they're ready, they'll, you know, make their own announcements that they're doing these types of projects. And I think it's a um, right. it's something which is not, um, it's not shifting energy policy in the sense that if, you know, if these companies want to diversify, that's great. Um, the amount of coal that will be used in the market is not something we're impacting. Um, we're just giving them alternatives for land that uh, they've previously mined. Any incentives now from the federal government under the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, give them an extra impetus to do that type of thing. And creating jobs. I mean, you're creating a new opportunity and a new, uh, you know, transformational industry in that in a region that needs it, right? So, and John, one of the things that we wind up doing is working in a lot of disadvantaged communities. Um, you know, up in Waukegan, Illinois, and in South Houston, Appalachia, as I mentioned, and so forth. These are areas that have a tremendous amount of poverty. Um, so, we've instituted uh, with local community college job training programs. We've supported them, um, and what we want to do is that people who go through these programs and kind of work on the construction gigs. Then they've got the, the training, they've got the experience, and then they can move on to uh, other construction or operations facilities as they go forward and so forth. So we've realized um, that, you know, being an incubator for that kind of stuff, training people as we go along, is just a necessary part of our our uh, our business model. Um, so it's something that we've been yeah. doing quite a bit. That's great. So um, the the recent passage last year of the Infl Inflation Reduction Act, along with the parallel passage of the bipartisan infrastructure, but we talk a lot about this show about how it is a monumental uh, platform of investment um, and really is going to help tee up a lot of uh, private investment to continue to move in this space. How in those specifically in those pieces of legislation, you know, the work that you do, uh, how has that been incentivized? What are some of the challenges that came out of it? Um, and, you know, what are some of the opportunities that it creates? Well, John, as you know, the, the investment tax credit um, was sunsetting or declining over time previously. Um, and yeah. what they did was they said, OK, we don't want that to happen. We want it to be um, stabilized, but also increased and, and increased for projects that are using American equipment, of course, but also um, projects that are in lower and middle income communities, which many of ours are projects which are in what's called energy communities, um, which are generally brownfields, uh, which is where we are. So we went from a situation where we were looking at a declining tax rate 
uh, investment tax credit uh, basis of say 26 or 22% for our projects going forward. Uh, and now some of our projects or many of our projects are getting 40% investment tax credits, which you know, you do the math for one of these larger projects uh, can be an enormous boost. Uh, and for some of the projects yeah. that we have in lower and middle income um, communities, we're actually exceeding the 40% going up into the 50 and 60% range of metrics. Those really become rocket fuel for what we're doing. Um, but, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, how did our change our business model? It hasn't changed our business model one bit. We're still doing exactly the same thing we were a year ago. Um, which is important because we can point to all of the projects we've done historically in the communities that you've said. Um, and now that people are realizing that uh, that these things can be economic in their own communities, uh, it really helps enormously. So um, it hasn't changed what we do, um, but it has changed the popularity of what we do and the number of projects we're you know looking to do. We foresaw our business model growing enormously. That's why we started talking with Clean Capital a year ago. Um, yeah. and, um, fortunately, we're ahead of the curve on that score. Yeah, and, and that's why this partnership is so beautiful. I mean, we I view the IRA and the legislation the same. It's not about changing the business model. It's about accelerating what we're doing uh, and continuing to really get more projects in the ground with better financing. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a full believer that this next decade is the decade that we have to solve the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and at least, um, you know, if we don't, if we're not, if we're not getting those projects in the ground, um, you know, by 2030, we're never going to hit any of the goals that we've, we've laid out as a, a country or a world. So, so Paul, you know, just for, um, uh, you know, sort of the final question I want to ask, well, first of all, before the final question, you know, looking at like the partnership side here, you know, how has working with Clean Capital um, helped you guys? And like, what has that relationship been? You know, John, as I said, we, we weren't necessarily looking for um, money, which will sound strange. Um, we were looking for heft. Uh, and the heft really was we saw that no matter what, our business was going to grow. Um, and so we could cherry pick only a couple of projects a year or we could let it grow kind of organically. Um, when people called up, we could do the projects that we wanted to and so forth. Um, so we were going to grow because the market was going to ask us to grow. Uh, and we needed to be yeah. having some uh, heft of working with a, a platform that would allow us to really focus on what we're great at. We're great at working on brownfields. We're working great at working with brownfield owners. We're working on developing projects and we're really good at that. What we spent a lot of time on, unfortunately, were financial matters, uh, HR issues and all these types of things that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're just dragging us down and so forth. Working with clean capital, we really are able to take the best of both worlds. Um, you know, working with people that you trust and people that you like um, is always good advice uh, in the world. And, and I think, you know, we, we knew that going in. Um, I've told you, I can say it publicly, you know, we turned down more lucrative offers. Yeah simply because we wanted to make sure that what we did after we uh, did a transaction like this, that we would be able to continue to do exactly what we do uh, and do it you know, more effectively. And that's what we're looking for. Um, there are things that uh, Clean Capital does. You, know, you go out and raise a lot of money. Uh, we help whenever we can. There are things that we do in terms of talking to new customers and so forth. And we bring in people like yourself or Tom Byrne um, or others to just uh, help us with those. So it's a, it's a very good, Fit, uh, and it makes a lot of sense uh, for what we were looking for, which was a 
a financial uh, backstop, if you will, that would give us the heft that we needed to kind of address market conditions. Yeah. And, you know, it, what it did for us on the clean capital side, it made us really rethink how we were growing. And, and you know, as you know, we've had we've all had our growing pains, but I think we've recognized the potential of of doing more in this and finding partners like VQ that we can help uh, put, give rocket fuel to. Uh, and, you know, as, for folks that aren't familiar, you know, we're doing things like shared services, as Paul mentioned, on things like policy and, and marketing, et cetera to help uh, everyone optimize what they're doing and, and scale quicker. So Paul, I really, listen, you've always always been one of my favorite people in the industry. Uh, and now that we're all part of the same clean capital family, it's it's uh, it's fun to be able to work hand in hand with you on stuff. Um, if you could go back to, um, you know, Paul at Marist College and you're about to graduate and sit down and have a beer uh, and give yourself a piece of advice, what would it be? You know, John, you learn earlier than, when I was doing my MBA at Marist, uh, right and wrong. You learn that in probably first grade or second grade. Uh, and most people learn from the parents. Um, and, and, and that message of do what's, do the right thing is probably the most important thing to, to go through and so forth. Every day we get stuff coming through here where, you know, there's, a, there's an easier way to get something done. Um, but, um, but figure out what's the right thing to do and stick with that and you'll be okay. Love it. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being part of the Clean Capital family and being on the podcast today. Um, if folks have ideas or or projects that could fit the BQ model, I mean, we meet developers all the time. They might have rights to a landfill, but don't know how to do it, but BQ can. Uh, please reach out to us at cleancapital.com or uh, at BQ as well. And, you know, we will, uh, we're all one family and we'll share those leads and have conversations. Um, so, Paul, thanks to you, the BQ team and the Clean Capital team, uh, Colleen Young as, as our producer, always uh, helping us put on a great show. And, uh, you know, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Great. Thanks, thanks so much. much.